Greetings and welcome to The Pure Report. I'm your host, Rob Ludeman. It is time to bring the orange with one of our special guests and now a four-timer, Mr. Sean Rosemarin, back for the most wonderful time of the year is when we get Sean on and go into predictions and we'll be looking at calendar 2022 already, Sean. I can't believe it, but welcome back to the program. Yeah, thanks. It's a pleasure to be back. Uh, I can't believe it's believe it's December either. Feels like just yesterday we were talking about what the year 2021 would bring. And now we're all fortunate we get to be 2022. So when's the last time that three of the four letters in the year were exactly the same? So for your listening audience, go think about that one um, and get back to us with your answer. The first one to have the correct answer wins a prize. Well, it's going to be fun when we get to February 2nd and February 22nd as well, when we have lots of twos lined up one after another, even if you do the dates in the international format, they're all going to kind of line up, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Numbers are an interesting thing. Look up in Canada, we're huge fans of hockey. Sidney Crosby being one of the uh, elite players out there, number 87. And uh, I don't know how many of the viewers may have dug into why he's 87, but not only what he was he born in 1887, was actually born on 8787. Uh, and his first contract was actually done for 8.7 million. So there's a lot of uh, lot of love for the numbers 87 over there. And uh, I don't know, just some good hockey trivia from a from a Canadian uh, up north. And I'm a hockey follower and I was not aware of that trivia. So now I have learned something and that is really cool. I just, I long for the days of the seventies and the early eighties highlights, right? Back when the hockey goalies had minimal equipment, when Wayne Gretzky and others could just set up shop behind the goal and you had seven, six games and eight, five games and all that. Like where'd all the goals go, Sean? I want more goals. Well, the goalie equipment got significantly larger. The goalies themselves got significantly larger and more and more finesse, um, Finesse has kind of gotten, uh, I would say, balanced by the goalie's ability to get large, larger and larger while the net has stayed the same size. So we have very important people up in Canada debating whether we should increase the size of the net or decrease the size of the equipment, equipment but all decision to the pros. Yeah, yeah, no, that is the truth. Well, let's let's go ahead and dive in. Well, first, yeah, before we get to the business, how are you doing? How are you holding up? I think last time when we did this a year ago with predictions, didn't you have a bear story? that was somewhere in there. Wasn't there a bear with a hike? I remember JD came on after and said, I don't have any anecdotal stories as good as running into a bear in the woods like Sean did. Like, what am I going to talk about? But uh, how are things going up in, up in the, uh, the Canadian wilderness up there? So we're doing okay. The family's great. And the bears are still uh, thriving out here. I mean, I have to be truthful to your viewers. Where I live, uh, up in North Vancouver, uh, there are quite a few bears. And so even since our last story, uh, I have had a few bears. Um, wander down the street, uh, actually walk right by my outside of my office window. Uh, it's, it's always a little scary. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, we live here with the bears in harmony. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're getting by, uh, I would say, you know, we're all very optimistic about 2022. Uh, the business climate seems to be, uh, seems to be humming. Uh, obviously here at pure storage, we're doing very, very well. Our customers and partners, uh, you know, continue to, to look to for, uh, for partnership on the data side and, um, look it's ski season. So for me, it's just an amazing, amazing time where you can get out and enjoy the outdoors and, you know, get some nice fast runs down a uh, white covered mountain. Yeah. We're pretty excited here in California because uh, despite it being rather dry and droughty for, for a number of years, 
apparently there's a big atmospheric river. I remember in the old days, there was no such thing as an atmospheric river. It was just, there were storms. And now we, we have to use more important words than they really, you know, it's like that old George Carlin bit about getting on the air, you know, we're, we're deplaning, you know, no, no, we're getting off the airplane, right? The boarding process, you know, so now we have atmospheric river. We can't just say it's a bunch of storms. We have to use terms that, that seem oh, yeah. more important than they really are, right? You're right. We had weather bombs, heat domes, atmospheric rivers. You know what I think happened? I think the weather was feeling like their marketing was very circa circa 1980s. They hired like an image consultant to say like, how can we up-level the weather so it can compete with all the other headlines coming around the world? So, you know, I, I, I think it's great. I think we should just, we should just name all weather events um, and try to be as sensational as possible, but uh, good luck with the atmospheric river. We've had them uh, up here in Canada a few times and they do bring a ton of moisture. So may the temperature be low enough that that turns to snow on those wonderful uh, Colorado mountains. That's right. Well, we will, we will hope for that. Well, let's, let's turn our attention to 2022 and you, I don't know, you just alluded to it a moment ago relative to hybrid work and some of the trends that you're following around that. And I think the realization that when we entered this interesting situation, we wondered how would we actually get things done? How would we build and manage teams? How would we manage people's careers and do that in a virtual setting when you don't get to look somebody directly in the eye and you're doing it through a screen? But now, 18 months later, hybrid work is really just a new reality. And we've all adjusted to that and we're functional and certainly productive and maybe even more productive. There, there are days where I feel more exhausted at the end of the day. And I know there's Zoom fatigue and staring at a screen and all the science behind that. But I feel like I get quite a bit more done than with a lot of the things that go on in the office. And it doesn't, you know, transfer the, the benefit of seeing someone or solving a problem just in real time. But what's going on with hybrid work in, in, in your world that you see? And what do you think that's going to have for implications for 2022? Well, look, I think the good news is we started off saying, how are we ever going to get all these things done? Right. I mean, especially in our career uh, in sales, right. A lot of folks would say that the old belly to belly being in front of your client being able to see people across the table is super critical. Um, I would tell you, you know, we initially leaned on Zoom and other tools as a crutch thinking, you know, we'll be able to lean on these before we can get back and back to normal. And I would argue now that, you know, part of our work life moving forward will be this as normal. And, you know, if you look at it in a grand scheme and you think 30 years from now and a bunch of, uh, you know, psychology and philosophers are sitting back and thinking of this time, this will have been the first major shift in the way we work mm-hmm. since post-industrial revolution. I mean, we set up offices, post-industrial revolution, and we all went to work and that's what we did. And, you know, during the pandemic, I think what we realized was we, we don't just need this as a fallback. This is actually a very efficient way to get things done. Uh, lectures, uh, learning, we can even see some of the, you know, dramatic moves over to education and where that, what, what happens that, I think all employees moving forward are going to expect an organization to have a hybrid work philosophy and a hybrid work strategy. It is not the be all and end all. We still need offices. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I do think that, you know, a lot of folks have also had a chance to reflect on how they want to live their life outside of work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are a lot of benefits to not being in transit, being on planes, being constantly uh, on the go to be able to fit things into your life. Like, family, like exercise, uh, like being closer to loved ones. 
uh, doing things like even getting a dog that you never would have been able to get before because you never would have never would have been around. And these things may seem petty and trivial to some, but they're an important part of what we've learned over the last couple of years. And I think finding the right work arrangement to make life work for you has become a real important priority for a lot of people. So I'm excited about it. I'm excited that there's no more stigma attached to being remote. And I think we've proven to everyone that can now decide to do work in the way that best works for us. Yeah, it certainly has become, I don't know if normal is the right word, but accepted or that we are accustomed to it. It's not as novel, right? And if you remember kind of early when everybody was doing Zoom, it was all about like crazy Zoom backgrounds and things. And, you know, like all trends, those things tend to wane. Now there's still people that are doing it. And it's, of course, very entertaining and amusing, but we're all far much more just accustomed to jumping on and seeing somebody's room background or bedroom in some cases or living room, whatever. It just, it doesn't matter. We're here. Let's get done, get work done. But that said, there still is a need for intense collaboration, right? There still is a need to engage. And as we start coming back into the office, what do you think that is going to look like? Does the traditional office as it is, the way it's arranged, whether with doors that close for somebody's own personal space or open work environments, does that still persist? Or do you view something different, something that's a new model? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little creative here, and I'm going to use some terms. I think that the concept of uh, listening or being able to interpret a message uh, remotely is fine. But here's what I've found personally over the last couple of years is there's, there's a fake learning or even uh, collaborating that comes with someone sharing information and that's fine remote. But then, you know, there's you no, know, there's this whole gestion process that typically happens. And you do that with usually a group of confidants where you sit around and you talk about what you just learned and you, you kind of like pressure test it with each other. Did I, did I really understand what that person said? Did it really work for me? And then you kind of go through this, process of, oh, okay, you filled in some gaps for me. I fill in some gaps for you. We bridge that what we heard, what it means to us is something similar. And then we kind of decide what it really means in terms of how we're going to use what we just learned to change what, change what we're doing. And my meta point here is, I think that what we're really missing with uh, the lack of being in the office is this distillation and this collaboration that existed. We did it at the bar, we did it at restaurants, we did it in collaboration rooms, we did it in pool halls, um, but we don't, the lack of that, that's, that's very difficult to do remotely. And so personally, I think the office still becomes an amazing place for ideation, coming up with new ideas and being able to talk to one another about them, being able to distill what we've learned and being able to really relate to what that means to our day-to-day -day and what we're gonna do about it. Um, so I look at, you know, some of the really interesting ideas out there of transforming traditional office space into, you know, collaboration hubs. And I think about all the opportunity we have to make these places where, you know, creativity can really thrive and people have maximum flexibility to get on the same page with one another. Rather than the traditional way we looked at offices, which is, I just want to go to my office, close the door, have a quiet place to work. I think we now have a quiet place to work. At least most of us do. Uh, in our homes. But when we go to work, we really should want to collaborate and work with others to bring those ideas to life. And, and I, I'm excited about that kind of, you know, partnership between office and home to really drive the, drive the best balance for everyone. 
Yeah, and I think we may see some division of how things are arranged. I was watching the news last night and they did a survey of Bay Area tech companies. And I think it was 40% of companies said that they intend to have employees required to come in the office three days a week, right? And so then you get into scenarios of, okay, on those three days, is it all about collaboration? And on the off days when you're at home, do you limit the amount of meetings and actually have time to reflect or focus time as our uh, Google calendars tell us to insert uh, and scream at us when we're not using enough of focus time to actually think and get things done? It's going to be really I, I, lo I love that idea. I love that idea because, you know, they are two different modes for our brains. One would say, you know, right brain versus left brain. You might say introverts versus extroverts. I think ultimately, though, what you've just said is, said is, is really important. I mean, when we're collaborating, we're generating ideas, we're generating lots of broad-based uh, thinking. But if we don't, we don't take that, find it, and build it into something we're actually going to do, then it never comes to life. So I love what you just said, which is like, let's just be a little bit more intentional about mm -hmm. when we're coming to the office, we're actually going to do things that we should do in the office. We're going to spend time building culture, building relationships, uh, ideating, collaborating ideas. But when we're home, let's not try to fill, fill all space with back-to-back -back Zooms. Let's actually be able to start to block out that space for what we're going to do with what we just took out of those sessions. Um, so you've given me a great opportunity to even take some of that thinking to the next level, but I'm 100% I'm on the same page with you there. Yeah. And that's one that was pre-pandemic for me. I mean, there were days that I intentionally would carve out and I followed more of a hybrid schedule before, but I would carve out a couple of days where I wouldn't go in and they would largely be, you know, blocks of time to, to read, to catch up, to read analysts, to, to just catch up on news. Or, you know, frankly, sometimes we're sitting with hundreds of emails that we're behind on and that's a great chance to, to plow through those. Okay. Well, you know, let me know when we talk next time, if that's something that you do with uh, next year, be really interesting. Um, all right. Next topic. And this one we read a lot about it's become really popular and in vogue in Wall Street Journal and in other publications, but there is a term now associated with it, the great resignation. And just the notion that I wouldn't necessarily call it attrition, but given that people have had a chance to sit back and take time and also be at home, is to actually reflect and look at what they're doing and their career and take the opportunity to make changes. And in some cases without anything lined up or in some cases to go do something entirely different. So does the great resignation continue even as we emerge out of the pandemic? Is it something that's ingrained into us because we've gone through this experience collectively? I think it does, right? I mean, this was our moment to get reflection. And I think at first had this lasted three months, 90 days, hundred days, I don't think, I think everybody would have reverted back to normal. But let's be honest, the normal changed. We talked about it earlier, right? I mean, people had children, they moved house, they had dogs, they changed their life. And then their new life is their new normal. And that we're reintegrating work into that. There's a lot of reflection of, you know, can I work in what is now expected of me? Am I happy in what is now expected of me? And what is it that I want to do? And it is a natural reflection point. But, you know, Rob, I'm going to take the opposite side of it. I do think that it can lead to attrition for a lot of companies that don't show flexibility in hybrid work and don't show, show flexibilities, collaborative spaces and helping employees to, to get to this new world that we're living in, this new world of work. But, but I would tell you, it's actually presenting an amazing opportunity for us to recruit and attract talent that would never have been available. Mm -hmm. They were never looking for another opportunity. They were just happy doing what they were doing and there was no critical reason to look for change. 
And I do think that that's a very positive element of this is that for companies looking for real exceptional top talent, um, you know, this change in what we do every day and this great resignation has presented an amazing opportunity to go out and talk to people who you just, just never were able to get interested in something different. So, you know, that's been a real positive uh, benefit of this. Yeah, it's a very positive spin on that. And we, you know, many of us tend to be pessimists where we look at the negative and go, oh, these people left or this person left, but it's actually creating opportunities. I love it. Well, one of the other things that is creating opportunities and one of the things that we love to do, and you already talked about a lot of the face-to-face engagement is it is events. And frankly, I miss them, right? I mean, I, I know it's a lot and you're there and, and you're busy and, and they're not eight hour days. They're typically 12 or 14 hour days, chock full of meals, dinners, side meetings, standing on a floor, doing booth duty time, or even if you're attending the conference, going and learning and just stuffing your brain with as much as you can. But I feel like we're doing two steps forward, three steps back on this. You know, in the last six months, my team has signed up for and gone to things that have pivoted to virtual, been canceled, or you know, depending on where they're located in the country, they've actually gone ahead and run them in person, despite you know maybe declining numbers. So I realize some of this is related to what's going on with some of the latest variants coming out, but do we go back to face-to-face events next year full bore, or is there going to be some type of you know, smaller things are satellite and virtual, the really large big ticket ones are in person or somewhere in between? Uh, look, I mean, reInvent just happened last week. So yeah. based on the knowledge I have of the event, there were roughly 20,000 or so people that attended it live. Appears as though the event went off well. Uh, I, think, I think that's a bellwether that the events will come back. I think there are people who want to be able to get exposure to as wide a perspective of what is going on in their industry that only those conferences can provide, right? We're talking about Dreamforce, we're talking about talking about Oracle, we're talking about uh, reInvent, uh, et cetera. But I think you'll see beyond those kind of, you know, marquee events, I think you'll see, first of all, a full, fully catered virtual equivalent. So you'll have everything offered online. Uh, personally, I'm looking forward to more of the smaller intimate gatherings, mm-hmm. uh, taking, you know, launch, launches and, you know, the analogy I would make for you, Rob, is think about a movie premiere where when a company's launching a new product, right, actually, actually have some events where you can invite a few people who have, you know, earned or, or deserve or, um, you know, have been nominated for the opportunity to come and meet the creators of that product, meet the creators of that particular solution, um, and you can syndicate it, you can replay it, but actually being live at some of these events, I think will start to be a cool thing. Like I was there at that smaller event and, you know, a little bit, I know you're a rock music fan, but kind of like getting one of those, um, you know, private attractions where you get to go see, I don't know, I don't know, Guns is in a 250 seat venue. I think we might start to see parts of conferences and certain vendors start to look at a much smaller audience. Uh, and a much different sort of event where being there in person actually means something. Sure. Yeah. Exclusivity always is an interesting thing. And certainly if you target the right individuals who would get value from it, you get up close with the people that you want to talk to, as opposed to some of the big marquee events where it's just basically a free for all with everybody there. I think that's really interesting. And that probably spans anything from user groups just to remote satellite location types of things. It's, it's, a yeah, really I mean, being thing. live is, is going to be a novelty for a while. It will Why not make it a bigger novelty Whereas in Vegas, I mean, it's probably no big surprise to many folks, but there's a lot of folks who flew down there and they attend the keynote in their room because fighting the cattle call, call 
getting into a tiny little seat that is jammed and stuck next to the seat next to it, uh, I might as well sit in my room. There's no benefit to me being there in person uh, unless you turn it into a rock car, you know, a rock star or rock concert type event where being there is the whole part of the experience. Right, right. Well, and I used to do that for open world. You know, the opening keynote was Sunday night and it was an hour and a half, two hours. It was Larry and some sponsor. And I just go sit in my hotel room and watch it because it was a hassle, right? To, to get into that thing with tens of thousands of How people. How about getting out? Well, yeah, I'm getting out and you're in the city. And of course, you know, as employees, they never let us stay right in the city. It was always, you know, 20 minutes away. So yeah, similar type of approach. I, I've done that. I could see that. Uh, I could see that working. Well, thanks for the insights on just how things are going to go relative to workplace trends and events. Let's jump into technology sector. I recall last year, we had a lot of insights that you were sharing in and around cloud, and, and let's just say as a service to, to try to avoid the, the cloud work, but the word, but um, how, how has that evolved since your predictions last year? We were talking about data center as a service and some really interesting, interesting terms there, but I, I think multi-cloud is becoming more of a reality, right? As that continues to mature and the cloud providers start uh, working more closely with one another, sure it's co-oppetitive, but they realize that the future is, is multi-cloud. Uh, how is that working out? You know, it's interesting. I mean, the first thing I just want to make sure we define, because I think we have made some progress as a uh, society, is the difference between multi-cloud and hybrid cloud. Mm. So hybrid cloud, cloud is a relatively old, um, you know, in, in relative terms, relatively old term. Basically says I have a single application. Um, um, and I'm rolling it to the public cloud, but I'm operating it on-prem as well. So I want hybrid between my data center and the cloud. And so we've seen bursting and we've seen snapping and all sorts of technologies to allow us to do that, to handle peak load, to handle DR, to handle failover. Um, one of the most interesting things though that's come up is when you think about multi-cloud, multi-cloud is the concept of being able to leverage several pu public clouds uh, or be able to move an application across several clouds, which everybody sort of said, why would I do that? But here's the reality. Here's the reality. I mean, we just had one of the major public clouds have an outage this morning. And, you know, the, the press around that topic was if this particular cloud provider had had an entire outage, it would have been as close to the world going dark on the internet as we've ever seen. And here's the interesting prediction, Rob. I think all these organizations, if you think about the big three and the big, big four, they've built more and more availability zones and more and more capacity for organizations to protect their applications and be resilient across the cloud. But I guess what I would ask you is, is it really an enterprises or should it be an enterprises organization to manage how they're going to fail over between clouds? Or should we kind of look at this a little similar to how telcos look at it? Mm -hmm. Should we be able to roam across clouds and should my cloud provider be able to tell me that in the event, the event that their cloud is not available, that they will manage the backend roaming charge of leveraging another cloud's infrastructure, and they will manage the portability and migration of my workload. I'm not saying we're there, and I'm not even going to say we're going to be there next year. I just feel as though this you know, portability of workload or this resiliency across the cloud, if we're going to rely on third parties in such scale to run such critical applications, I do think we have to solve for how do we ensure that we have, have ability beyond that one individual player. Um, and so that, I think that's a really big thing. I'm calling it multi-cloud portability. But to be really clear, it's not about being able to deploy to any cloud just because I feel like I want to. 
It's being able to ensure that I have the resiliency and availability of that application, which more and more is becoming critical to the world, world working way we expect it to. Yeah, very much like the electricity grid, although occasionally sometimes we see that <laughs> breakdown in the case of Texas uh, sometime last year. Oh, it's, it's a good concept, right? If you remember the way data centers were built, I had two separate grids that fed into the data center using common standard power. And in the event that one grid wasn't available, I would get all of my power from the other. But there was no disruption to the tenant. There was no disruption to the individual who was in there. So we have, have that today, Z's. Uh, or availability zones or whatever you want to call them. What we don't have is none of the big four have kind of said, hey, we're going to build a, going to build a relation with another cloud provider. We're going to ensure that you have redundant clouds. So regardless of whether you're running on cloud A or cloud B, if one of those becomes unavailable, we will actually ensure that the applications can run seamlessly on another cloud. We will fail over and it will be completely transparent and visible to you. Yeah. Because ultimately today, a lot of, a lot of companies are doing, going through a lot of gymnastics to ensure they could move from one cloud to another in the event there was a disruption. But should that really be an enterprise's responsibility or should that be you know, a new strategic advantage to working with one cloud provider over another? Yeah, no, I agree. I, I don't necessarily think that should be the responsibility. There's enough to worry about within the enterprise or within the enterprise data center to have to account for that. Um, well, while we're on the subject of cloud, let's talk a little bit about cloud adjacent storage. I had uh, one of your fellow Canadians, Canadians on a week or two ago, Madison Long, who works for CloudOps, uh, fantastic guest. And we, we honed in a little bit around edge, which I know is not the entire defining factor about cloud adjacent storage, but it certainly seems to be one of the drivers just about harnessing the data. And there was some crazy stat that he pulled out that something like 75% of the, the data generated by enterprises in 2025 is going to be generated out at the edge. And so what do you do about that for cloud adjacent storage or even edge adjacent storage? And I think they're all, you know, relatively uh, related, but where do you see that going? Yeah. I mean, it's more and more interesting, right? Because if you think about where we are in terms of analyzing data, um, the most interesting problems that lie ahead of us are problems that um, definitely be solved with today's availability or consumerization of compute network via the cloud. But there still is a large amount of organizations that either because they're not comfortable or because uh, laws and regulations prohibit it, cannot move data sets to the cloud, cannot, cannot expose certain details in those data sets to the cloud. Now, it might be because there's intellectual property. If I think about a chip manufacturer, they don't want to put their simulation data in the cloud. It might be government regulated. I think about healthcare institutions and HIPAA relations. There are some clouds that are certified, but there's still a large degree of discomfort. And then obviously there's a whole bunch of financial data and trading data. If you're a hedge fund or a quant, you're definitely not putting all of that data um, outside the walls of your data center. And so how do you get the best of what the cloud has to offer to actually drive essentially limitless consumption of compute network that you don't own, but keep your data really close? And so what we've seen is, uh, you know, we're calling cloud adjacent, adjacent storage, seeing more and more of this opportunity that says, hey, let me, let me sit adjacent to the cloud. Let me have high speed connections for ingress and egress to Azure, to Google, to AWS. And let me build all of my compute capacity inside that cloud. But let my data reside at the edge. And you might think, oh my God, the ingress and egress would be enormous. But I will tell, tell you, it is changing by the day. One of the biggest announcements actually came out of reInvent 
was changes in the way ingress and egress are calculated in the way, in the way they're charged. This is becoming a, um, a, just a fact of life. By the way, latency also says in many cases, my data needs to be at the edge. I just can't send everything back and forth. Right. And so the sharing of what is actually done on the data at the edge, how do I leverage the compute to actually calculate things real time? I think this concept of really look, looking at cloud-based data services with these ultra high-speed connections to the cloud is gonna be a really, really big opportunity. In fact, here at Pure, at Pure we just a pretty incredible solution for um, chip manufacturing and what we call EDA or electric, electronic design automation, allowing chip companies to actually take the simulation testing of a new board, keep the data at the edge, because it's large uh, intellectual property there, but be able to actually run all their simulations in the cloud without exposing any of their data, their data public. And we're actually in that partnership with Azure. It's incredibly exciting. We already have quite a few chip companies who have said, hey, you know, we're, we're really, really interested in this concept because it, we don't have to put huge farms on our in our data center, but we don't have to expose our data publicly in the cloud. So. Cloud adjacent is one piece. You touched on edge. I do think that's another one. I do think we're going to see more and more solutions of what I'll call micro data services that start to say, you know, what can I run on a Raspberry Pi? What can I run on a small storage device, device attached train or out in the industrial floor that essentially is doing nothing but a mini version of ETL, a mini extract transform load, looking for pattern changes, and then tossing that up to your cloud adjacent storage to be matched with all the other factories around the world. And then maybe having that data sit up in archive in the cloud in a glacier type scenario, where if I have to look to look back over years, I have that data set available. And so tremendous potential as the bandwidth between all these operating environments and edge cloud develop. But, you know, stateful data and confidential data are absolutely keys to solve here. And, and I, I think we're making huge progress there. Yeah, absolutely. And a good plug if folks want to go back and hear more about the EDA and Azure announcement that Sean referenced there. I had Dr. Robbie Podar on a few weeks ago. So there's a good pod in the Pure Report program where you can get more details. And we both come from that industry. So the first 10 minutes, we do geek out a little bit on semiconductor industry anyway. So if you want a little bit of primer and a background and actually to understand and learn what a tape out actually really is, we, we actually talk about that a little bit. Now it's just a file, but it actually used to be something physical, kind of interesting. Um, well, with this discussion around edge and, and with cloud, obviously the word security comes to mind, right? And just the reluctance, and you've even alluded to this a couple of times, just the reluctance of where the data resides and security and compliance compliance certainly is there. It seems like this one is cyclical, right? The security right. industry builds a whole bunch of companies and then it contracts. And, and are we in a contraction period here? I, I, I think the answer is yes, because I just feel like there's just so many companies out there right now and there's going to be acquisitions and, and combinations of companies coming together. Absolutely. I think it was VMware a few years ago that coined the term intrinsic security. That's, that security would be intrinsic to everything we did as opposed to the way we used to build it was develop it in an insecure environment, do all your testing, and then we'll add security after the fact. Intrinsic security is absolutely where we're at. I mean, we've seen ransomware increase. We've seen the amount of threats increase. Working from home has increased the attack vector. We have people doing things from home that we never would have allowed them to take that kind of data, data offsite. Um, you know, not even to mention all the physical security things that have changed. What I would tell you though is it's, it's an exciting time to be in the security industry, but like you said, there are thousands of players. And Rob, to be, to be a bit of a, of a cynic, 
I, I do hear the same messaging over and over again, which is, you know, what's your competitive advantage? Oh, we have the best algorithm. Well, what, what, what do you mean? Well, we have the best AI and threat intelligence to be able to connect all the dots and actually tell customers where the next threat is going to occur. Let me be clear. There's no doubt that there is an IP differentiation in the um, advanced uh, nature of the algorithm. But what I tell you is customers are looking to simplify their security environments. They, as much as they understand that best of breed may grant them the best overall solution, the complexity of integrating all those pieces of security is uh, incredibly intimidating. And unless you have a team of you know, 50 or 100 people doing nothing but security, it may be overkill. Mm -hmm. So I predict, Rob, we could, we could see consolidation in the security industry where a lot of these best in, in class players, those whose IP is really at the top of its game, game acquired and will be integrated so that the platform of deploying the security, updating the security, monitoring and managing the security uh, topology will be something that, you know, midsize and, enter, you know, large enterprises can manage without massive, massive teams. Um, the flip side of that is I do think a lot of those platforms will also, will also be uh, very, very favorable for service providers who want to start to deliver more and more of an end-to-end -end security um, offering as a service. So yeah, absolutely incredibly innovative time for security. I think if you're, uh, you know, if you've got the metal and your solution is as advanced as you believe it to be, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of these companies picked up in the next 12 months. Yeah, for sure. Okay, final topic, and this one got a lot of press recently, and we'll do air quotes here that nobody can see, but the metaverse, right, and the whole meta thing, but I, I think we're not talking just about a certain company and their rebranding. Really, you look at the level of compute that is out there and the way to manipulate data and the advances in graphics and graphics processing. Uh, we may be at the time where worlds come together, where physical and digital can can actually work, and it's more than just something like Second Life, which I think was a little bit a little bit ahead of its time, although really really interesting until it became a really weird commercial place to to kind of hang out. But what do you see for the metaverse? And I don't know is this a is this a calendar twenty twenty two thing or is this going to be a little bit further downstream? I tell you, this is going to be the next 10 to 15 years of okay. our professional lives. I think it's a very broad topic and we're all getting used to what it is and what it isn't. Um, but, you know, if you look at a lot of the things we've already been talking about, I mean, it's, it's really, really interesting to quick, um, uh, you know, visit down memory lane and digital. When we first started out, you know, the browser was kind of the first opportunity to have a, a, a digital world. Then we started to see, hey, we can start to create things online. We can start to create profiles online. We can start to build friends online through things like Facebook. Um, you know, we can start to start to experience things online as we saw more and more media come online. Then we started to get phones and we started to get watches. And all of a sudden, our digital identity was actually telling us things, reminding of us things, asking us things. It became almost an augmented part of our, of our lives. I think a lot of teenagers and, and you know, folks who are much younger than us would actually say they're spending more time in their digital life today than their physical life already. Mm -hmm. So the concept is we, we have been on this road. Now, if we take things like virtual, virtual reality, augmented reality that we kind of played with, we have some technology there, but we haven't really found a way to integrate that in. I think as we look at this metaverse concept, um, look, it's easy to get dark and dystopian and think about, you know, people who are just plugged into their computers all day and not enjoying the world that's out there. I'm going to take a different direction. I'm going to say this is the natural evolution of where, where we are. 
This is a digital identity that knows more as much about you as the people who know you. And I'm going to take the high road. High road as an opportunity for organizations and enterprises to actually build a connection with their customers and for families to build connections with others that may otherwise not be possible. Right? We're still going to live in our physical world and experience our physical world. This is just the next evolution of what's happening digitally. Now, don't get me wrong, with every light, with every positive thing, there is the potential for a shadow. There is the opportunity for this to get abused. There is an opportunity for people to spend way too much time in that digital, digital world, sorts of health effects and other things that could occur. But I'm excited about the fact that we're actually viewing this as how do we take both worlds and give people an overall more positive experience of their life? How do we make people's lives better by merging their physical and digital worlds? And if you just think about something very simple, like people, people's access or the socioeconomic means to be able to experience things in life, there is no doubt that there is a large percentage of population that has not had access to experience many of those things. And if the metaverse grants an experience to those who otherwise would never have been able to bring that into their life, um, then that would be a very positive outcome uh, overall. So look, we're early. Mm -hmm. um, there are many players in this. You know, Rob, I think there's some, uh, some jokes out there, out there that Nike already bought uh, some of the rights for, um, for leisure wear and athletic wear within the metaverse. There's companies buying rights to music. Um, I think we're going to see this play out over the next 15 years, but I don't think it's something new. I think it's more the way in which we will define the coming together of our physical and digital worlds. Yeah, certainly I think it's easier to see the, the B2C implications of it, right? I mean, if we've seen the rise of, think about something like just chatbots, right? I mean, yesterday I had a package arriving and I got invited to go get on a chatbot and say, okay, I don't want a signature delivery. And and it took me through, but what if that chatbot becomes an engaging experience, right? Where you jump in and then you're actually in sort of a virtual reality type of thing. It's just another extension of it. But you're also talking interestingly about the humanistic or the personal implications for it, right? If you've never seen Rome, can you jump into a virtual experience that enables you to do that that's close enough is, is almost the real thing without having actually been there, right? The sites, all of that. So it, it has a lot of wicked potential, I think. Really interesting. Well, and, and, and don't forget, right? It brings in things like digital payments. So it becomes a fuel for things mm -hmm. like cryptocurrency. Um, you know, it also pulls in the concept of a lot of what else is already out there. So yes, the experiential aspect is a one. You can imagine for a moment now, if I join a fan club for a particular band, I can get access to all sorts of digital experiences, but I can also, can also go see them, right? I can actually, like, they can grant me a better experience as a fan than I ever could before. And today they come through different channels, right? Like some comes by mail, some comes by email, some you find on the internet. I think what the metaverse does is says, hey, can we actually use what we already know about you? And I know for a lot of us that are older, it's scary that these companies know so much about us, but that's, that's the, way, the way the world works. Can companies actually take what they know about me and with my trust, actually build a better experience for me? So I don't have to find it. It actually finds me. And overall, it becomes easier for me to consume and I get a much better experience out of it. Uh, so look, I'm excited about what this can offer. We're going to have to be careful, just like we're when we first got on the internet, just like we were when we first got phones, just like we were when we, you know, started to look at things like cruise control control and it's driving. There's a lot for us to figure out as technology and humans kind of become closer together. 
Um, but I think the next 10 to 15 years are going to be exciting to see the way this rolls out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and on the privacy and sharing data, I still go back to uh, Sun Microsystems fearless leader, Scott McNeely, and this was way ahead of its time, probably in the early 2000s, when he said, you have no privacy get over it. Right. I mean, that, that, that one always, that always sticks in my mind. And then, and now flash forward 20 years and think about all the things that we readily willingly give, give up. I mean, the amount of tracking on our phone, when we get all freaked out about privacy and then realize there's how many different apps that know where we're going from cell tower to cell tower. So, uh, you know, we, we do have some level of trust, but there is always the dark side and the dystopian side. You mentioned a moment ago, uh, crypto, and I want to do quick hit on just a few close topics because I know we got to wrap in a little bit here. Yep. Uh, the role of crypto, how are governments going to yep. look at crypto relative to, you know, stabilizing currency? I know there was just a big dip in the market recently, you know, like a multi tens of percents uh, drop in, in some of the crypto markets. So yeah, just, it's, it's a it's, temporary it's, blip, right? Well, I'm not going to give stock advice or buying <laughs> advice here. But what I would tell you is, I mean, look, these look, these are new. There is no doubt whatsoever that the concept of digital currency versus paper money is in the future. How it comes to be, uh, how exactly the blockchain is leveraged, uh, which particular coins are out there. I think the thing to watch in government is stable coins, which is just fundamentally flipping the Federal Reserve of paper money or traditional gold into a digital reserve and something where every coin is actually worth and pegged to federal currency no different than today. Uh, that's the piece I'm particularly interested in because that just that's just more liquidity in the market. That turns every transaction into a PayPal-like transaction uh, and gets us away from a lot of the paperwork and the, 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 the rigid systems that we have today. It'll have to be regulated. It'll have to be dependable, um, but I do think that you know that 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 part of it is very very interesting from a government perspective. Uh, everything else else going on, I'll leave that to a different show. Yeah, no, I was not meaning to make any predictions or ask for advice there. And I know there's millions of people out on Twitter who will give you their opinion on that and tell you to always buy the dip. But uh, we won't go there right now. Uh, Second of three, uh, healthcare. I've had a number of guests on recently on healthcare, and it is a really, really interesting space, not only with what's going on with, with imaging and the faster processing capabilities and our ability to do better things with managing the data, but AI is finally unlocking capabilities to speed up diagnosis, to speed up research, to dive deeper into genomics, that's probably going to continue to trend, but what, what else are you seeing there? Predictive medicine. I mean, yeah. today, reactive medicine. You get sick, you go to the doctor, they run a bunch of tests, they give you a drug, you go home, hopefully you get better. Predictive medicine. I mean, initially, that might be something's going to happen to you a year out or two years out, more sophisticated blood, blood tests, more sophisticated imaging. But Rob, what I would spell out for you is even decades out, I mean, you'll get an owner's manual for your new baby. I mean, mm -hmm. here's, here's the baby's head. We've already run a whole scope of tests. We've completely mapped their genome. Here's all the things you can expect from your child. Here's all the things that you may want to do to keep them out of harm's way around anything that they may have in their genetic coding. Um, I, I think that that concept of predictive medicine is going to scale out and out and out as we look at more data and the ability to connect more data, but more importantly, learning what we've seen, learning from the patients that we have diagnosed and what treatments they've had and what has worked. I mean, IBM started this with Watson quite a few years ago. We are only getting started in terms of predictive medicine. So I'm really excited about healthcare and technology. And I really think there's a tremendous opportunity for us to grow that. 
Yeah, I think the term you used when we had a chat recently, and sorry for the folks that are not Americanized or Canadianized in baseball, but you said we're basically in the second inning as far as this whole thing goes, right? It is it is just getting started. And I think another place, final topic, is, is where we're really just probably in the second inning, to use the same analogy, is around electric vehicles. I mean, look here, I, I, I feel like I live in Silicon Valley and it's the capital of electronic or electric vehicles. I, I can't go anywhere without seeing them. And, and it's great, right? There's, there's great environmental implications, but also people feel like they're driving something different. It's not necessarily a car. It is an experience, truly. But now I think you're predicting you're going to see this expand into other forms of transportation and maybe not even just the wheeled variety. There's some really crazy stuff out there for how we do rail or even airlines. Seriously? Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that we have crossed the chasm in terms of the viability of electricity as a end source for vehicles. And you know how we're going to, there's a lot of fatigue initially, how we're going to charge them and we're going to have range anxiety. And, you know, is, is the weather in Canada going to affect the ability of the electrons to function? I think we've gotten through a lot of that. And, you know, as I see more and more Teslas on the road and more and more, you know, Nissan Leafs and all sorts of other electric cars, people are getting comfortable with it. But to me, the real value here is when we start to look at the construction uh, industry, we start to look at heavy machinery, we start mm -hmm. to look at, to look at rail, and we start to look at even airlines operating on electric power. Now, of course, they'll need fail safes and you'll need the ability to get these things out of the road if there is some sort of a malfunction. Uh, and they may be hybrid at first where they only revert to uh, gasoline power in the event of a failure. But look, what we do know is we have to come up with a more effective way of generating energy without, without putting some heavy footprint on the planet. To date, the only way we have to do that uh, is either to power vehicles via, via solar, power vehicles via um, electricity. I'm bullish at this point, given all the advancements we've had, that you know, I know in my province anyway up here, uh, you won't be able to buy a gasoline-powered car past 2030. Uh, and there will be strong incentives post-2025 uh, to start to reduce that. I do think as we start to look at, look at industrial machinery and even transportation vehicles, uh, I wouldn't be surprised even in the next five years if you start to see the vast majority of light, light rail, buses, rail, and an even big heavy machinery uh, are starting to really focus the innovation to getting those uh, fully electric. Um, and once again, huge opportunity uh, for a lot of industry and a lot of investments. So um, I'll, be, I'll be watching that closely. Yeah, for sure. And that's one that as it gains momentum, the economies of scale kick in and it gets easier and more cost effective to, to actually do that because there's not as many first movers. Well, I've even heard, Rob, about some real interesting ideas and ideas, and that's where we start to charge things on the go. So this concept of actually being able to recharge batteries based on, uh, you know, rechargers buried in the road themselves. So as you're actually driving down the road, the battery's getting charged and recharged. So even this concept of stopping to charge your car may disappear. Uh, you may be in a system where you're actually getting recharged either via the, via the sun, eventually we integrate solar into this, uh, or even just via uh, some sort of uh, conduction uh, coming, coming through the roadway or something on the side of the roadway. Um, you know, it, some of the stuff may seem so scientific, but I'll tell you, innovation moves much faster than we expect. I think the majority of what we talked about in this show is kind of within this decade. And, um, you know, it's on all of us to, to try to keep a close eye on this and, uh, you know, look at how it's going to affect our lives and, and our careers. So lots of great opportunity ahead. It's going to be an amazing 2022.
Yeah, thanks for your insights, of course. And when you talk about the vehicle recharging, all I can think about are the really cool Hot Wheels tracks that we all had as kids where you pop the car in and it just it just kept going, right? It just had that little kicker, those wheels that would just whiz it along and you just sit and watch it go over and over again, or even slot cars, really fun, fun stuff. And, and there you go, listeners. There's my callback to something in the 70s or 80s I grew up with since I'm apparently known for doing that with, with bad analogies and anecdotes. Mr. Rosemarin? It was a pleasure as always. Thanks for your insights. I always enjoyed this conversation and uh, let's get you back on soon. All right. Yeah. Huge holiday wish to all those out there. Um, you know, restful and uh, relaxing holiday break. Uh, I look forward to talking with you guys in the new year and, and um, yeah, hot wheels. I still remember it. Pull back the car, hear the clicking noise, release it and go. Away it goes. Away it goes. Absolutely. Uh, those, those were the best. Nothing digital about it either. All analog. Always great. Well, thank you, sir. I do appreciate it. We'll get you again on soon. And hey, thank you out there for checking out this episode of The Pure Report. We do hope you have a wonderful and festive holiday period and Merry Christmas for those who celebrate. We hope you enjoy some time off and relaxing time with family and friends or whatever you do. And thank you for listening to this episode. Tell a friend, tell a colleague, send us any feedback to purereport at purestorage.com and we will respond. And with that, we'll wrap for Pure Storage. And Sean, Rosemary, and this is Rob Ludeman saying, don't look back, something might be gaining on you.